Well, as I already mentioned, we, uh, this morning we're starting a new series. Uh, this series is called To Be or Not to Be the Church. Really simple, it's beautiful, and you'll notice that I did kind of choreograph, look, if you look at the colors, and, the, it's, and we'll get to the, explain that. Well done, Norm, well done. The truth is, God has a plan for you and I, and often people wonder, what is God's plan f- for, uh, for our lives? Ever thought about that? What is God's plan for you? I, I think this, though, we often think very individualistic. And not actually far beyond ourselves. We often think, what is God's goal for us? Or what, do we th- what does he want to do with me? But God sees more than individuals. In fact, he sees corporately. Because God is Trinity. We, we actually sang about it this morning. We believe in God the Father. We believe in, in the Holy Spirit. We believe in Christ the Son. We believe he is a triune God. He is in community all the time. He is completely one. And so when I think about God and I say, God, you have a plan, he actually says, yes, I have a plan for us. Do you know that most of the Bible is actually written not to individuals but to people? One example today, the book we're going to read into is called the book of Ephesians. It's not written to one particular person. It was written to the entire church a church in Ephesus. And even when we talk about the stories, these old stories in the Old Testament, these individuals like David or Solomon or or whoever, these different individuals are actually wrapped up in a greater story about God wanting to restore people, the redemption of people. So God reveals in his word the plans he has for us. And although those specific, in, those specific details, individually, they're not mapped out. How many of you know uh, exactly what God wants to do with your life? Exactly. No, probably not. And if you do know exactly, I would say God has a really interesting journey that he's going to course change you when you think you know it all. Amen? <laughs> the Bible... In that sense, we don't know what he has specifically, but we do know he has a hope and a future. And similarly, God's corporate plan is very similar. He has a hope and a future. But the truth of it is, God gives actually more details corporately about what he wants to do with the church than he does with individuals. If I was to tell you uh, what's God's plan for the church, he actually gives more information in the Bible what he wants to do with us than he does with you. Did you know that? So I'm going to ask this question. Do you ever wonder what God wants for us? Now, we discover God's plan for us when Jesus was speaking in Peter in Matthew chapter, to Peter in Matthew chapter 16. So we actually discover Jesus' plan for us when he's having a conversation. And he, he asks Peter, and he says, Peter, who do, you, who do the people say that I am? And Peter replies, well, John the Baptist, Elijah, Jeremiah, uh, one of the prophets. Then Jesus asked, but who do you say that I am? And Peter responded in in a revelation. He said, you are the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And this is is what Jesus' response to Peter's uh, reply. And I'm going to put this in my paraphrase. He basically says to Peter, Peter, you got it. 
Peter, you got it. You have the revelation from the Father of who I am. And because you know that, because you have this revelation, I'm going to give you a new identity. I'm going to even give you a new name. And through you, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not even prevail. See, what Jesus did just shared with there is he said, I have a plan and a purpose, Peter. I want to build my church and Peter, you're going to be a part of this. It's not that Peter was uber special, that he had some sort of crazy anointing. He just said, and it's very similar to us, because he asked the same question. Who do you say that I am? Christopher, he comes to you this morning and he says, who do you say I am? Carolyn, who is Jesus to you? Who am I is what he says. Who do you, who do you say I am? And if your response if your response this morning, Bryn, is, I say you're Jesus, the Messiah, you're the Christ, you are the Son of God, guess what he says? Bryn, you, you got this, you got this revelation. It didn't come because of your great brain, you have a great brain, but just saying, he doesn't say you have because of this, he goes, you got it from God, and because you got that, I'm going to give you a new name, new identity, and then he says, and through you, I will build my church. That's my plan. Through you, Ruth. Through you, Lindsay. Through us, he says, I'm going to build my church. And guess what? The gates of hell will not prevail. And so when I ask that, I say, Jesus asked the same question. And we become a part of what Jesus is building, his church. And I want to say that because the church is not a man-made institution. In fact, this first time we hear that is the first time we hear in the Bible the word church. Jesus called us the church. No man made that term. Ecclesia, the ecclesia, the group of fellow believers. And so the idea of church came in this way, and it's a restoring of God's family. So let's open our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4. 1 to 16. And we're going to read this plan that God has for the church. He's going to build it, but let's read a plan. Ephesians 4, 1 to 16. And this is what the word says. Sorry, this thing's pulling on my ear and it's going to flop off. So there we go. I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love. Eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. I'm just going to skip 8 and 10 because Paul goes in a little bit of a monologue about Jesus, so we're just going to jump over that. And I'm going to read 11 and 12, but I'm not going to talk about it. It's going to come in our series, so I'll just talk, read it, but not go into it too much. And he, Jesus, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, 
by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him with which is the head, or to him who is the head into, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which is equipped. And every part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This morning, God has a, has a call and a plan for us as his church. Did you know that? What is his plan? As Jesus said to Peter, I will build my church. That's his plan. I'm going to build the church. But in Ephesians, Paul sums it up in verse 15. He actually expands on this thought. He says in verse 15, to grow up in every way into him. And, and the, the picture he gives is so that we're not tossed back and forth like, like children in waves. And we're not carried by deceitful schemes. In other words, Jesus' plan was not only to die and save us, but to heal us, deliver us, and change us. That's his plan. If you meet him, he says, by the way, I have a plan to make you a different person. It's called my church. And I love this because it's about maturing. The the plan is to bring us to maturity, to mature us. Now, how many of you know there's there's absolutely, the most worst thing that could happen is this. Have you ever seen an adult that lives like a child? Have you ever seen that? Um, By this I mean an adult who wants people to care for them, but when when they are meant to be caring for others. You see, because being an adult isn't about having children, it's about caring for a child. That actually is what makes one a father or a mother. Uh, Just because a young person decides to have a child does not make them an adult. Or engage in whatever adult activities. It doesn't make them an adult. What makes or constitutes a mature person? Ever seen people who, although they're adults, act like children? Well, I can tell you what it looks like. Whenever things don't go their way, they usually throw a tantrum. Or uh, if you, this, ultimately, the truth is, they, they just don't really know what it means to grow up. Because um, maybe it was the hand that they were dealt, maybe they were brought up in what our culture is doing. They're fed the idea that they're the center of the universe. And that the world revolves around them. You ever, you ever meet anyone like that, Aaron? No, never. Never. I've never, ever met people, anyone like that. Um, that maybe that the, there's a, the child-centric, is that the child is so much the, the, the center of the universe. And we've actually been taught to raise our children like that. Um, I did this. I actually did a poll. Well, I... Uh, I went out and checked and asked some, some girls uh, who are looking to marry men. I asked them if they were interested in 35-year-old males still living in their parents' basement who, whose mom makes them peanut butter sandwiches and they play video games or role action games all day. Oddly enough, out of those women that I polled, uh, none of the women said they would like to marry someone like that. It's weird, eh? I didn't quite get that. Okay, I'll be honest. I, I actually didn't do that poll. 
And, and if I'm really honest, I still play video games with my kids. I, I play, I, I, I do that. I do play board games. It's a stereotype of what it looks like to be immature or not having maturity. Um, so, no, I haven't done that, so please don't get any offense with that, but you get my point. At the heart of the stereotype is the need for maturity. Paul says, God's heart for us, in verse 13, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Church, God's plan for you and I is to mature us. And the measurement of that maturity, you want to know when you get there? It's when Jesus, you have reached Jesus. The fullness of Christ. Anyone like that in this room? You see, the Apostle Paul says there's so much God wants to do. He, he has a plan. He has a destiny. And he, he has so much for us to experience. But it's in the most paradoxical, paradoxical way that this plan involves more than us. Jesus' words, I want to build my church and I want you to be a part of this. And if you're a part of this, even the gates of hell cannot prevail. However, this is the interesting part, and this is why this series is called To Be or Not To Be. Do you know you get to a choice? You get a choice. You get a choice to say, yes, Lord, I will be a part of your plan or not. Every human being has a choice to be a part of building and being a part of his kingdom or not. And this morning, I... I, I want to I, I ask this, Lord, how do you help me to make that choice, to come into maturity? Because maturity isn't dependent on age. And this series is all about one thing, to be or not to be the church. This is the call to maturity together. Now, I'm going to ask two questions, two questions that I'm going to answer through these scriptures. What do I mean by the call to maturity? And the second question is, does, what does together look like? Okay, so we're going to just rip through these. The first question that I ask, what do I mean by the call to maturity? Well, the calling to maturity is this. In the verse, it says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been had. Which you've been called, sorry. This calling to mature means you actually have to start from a place of knowing what it, it, it means you know the value or you have a value in what you've been called to. Let me explain by this. Paul starts this word, therefore. Therefore, uh, prisoner Lord, urge you, therefore, which means this. He's connecting all the previous chapters that we just skipped over. We're jumping right in the middle of the book, and we're missing out what Paul had previously just gave us a clear picture of what it means to know God. So, obviously, because I jumped in the middle, you don't get the full meal when he says, therefore, because when you say, therefore, you've got one, two, and three chapters that we just missed. But Paul says this. He's given this clear picture in chapter one, two, and three of what it means to know God. And he says, in light of all this, what you know, this is how you live. As we go through this series, we're going to unpack the therefore. We're going to actually go through what 
these living out things look like in greater detail. But in light of the gospel, what God has done on the cross, walk in a manner worthy. Well, to understand what it meant for them to be worthy, okay, Ephesians, we're reading a book of Ephesians. It's a people. How did they come to know Jesus? Because this will give you a deeper insight. If you look around an individual, every one of you came to know Jesus, but your stories are different. And if you understand a different story, sometimes I think when you understand what has been given, you receive it a little differently. And sometimes I sit there and shake my head because people don't realize their testimony. Well, let's read the Ephesians. What what was Ephesians, their testimony? It was actually in Acts chapter 19. If you want to read it in your own time, go for it. But Acts 19, this is how they received the gospel. Paul had came to Ephesus. So there is a picture of Ephesus that, you want to jump over there? Boom, boom, means valuing. Boom, light of the gospel. Boom, Ephesus, thank you. Thanks, Sid. I'm just ripping through this, trying to get through this here. Ephesus was a beautiful city that was, abs- was actually second, well, sorry, third in, in, in all of the cities, maybe fourth to Rome. This massive cosmopolitan place that people went, but it was full of idol worship, full. People worshipped, uh, especially one that was Artemis. Artemis was a fertility god. So they had tons and tons of worship. Artemis also with Diana was the other one. Diana was another, if you know Wonder Woman, the movie that just came out, and her name, they actually are relating to uh, Diana, who was the Greek goddess of wisdom and war and fertility. Anyway, enough of that. And all you comic geeks went, (gasps) and they had a sigh of relief. There you go. But what happens is he goes into this Ephesus and a brother had gone before him. His name was Apollos. Apollos told the people about how they needed to repent and they did. And they repented. And then Paul came along and he said, he found out the church was doing that. And then he said, but have you heard about the Holy Spirit? No, we haven't heard about the Holy Spirit. And he said, whoa, you, okay, let's pray that you get this, this moment where God actually tells you how he loves you and feels you. So he prays and many of them got filled. In fact, when we read the scriptures, it's crazy what happens. Uh, Verse 11, and God is doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul. This is Ephesus. So that even handkerchiefs or or aprons that had touched his skin were carried back to the sick, and the diseases left them, and evil spirits came out of them. Their church experience was... Oh, we got healed! What happened? What? That's crazy talk. That's just what we read. This church, how they came to know Jesus was because God was moving so powerfully in them that if they touched Paul or touched a handkerchief from him, brought it to somebody else, people were getting healed or get set free. We just did a set free weekend. Isn't that awesome? But in fact, this is how it went in, 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 as we continue on. The, Lord, the word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily And when the first believers in Ephesus came to Jesus, they brought all of their relics. In fact, this is what it says. And many of those who were now believers came confessing, divulging their practices. And a number of those who practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in sight of all. And they counted the value and found it. It came to 50,000 pieces of silver. So the word of the Lord continued 
continued to increase and prevail mightily. This is how the church started. Paul makes this little motion. Well, by the way, they started to burn all of their idols and all of their books of their previous life. 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, what we don't realize is 50,000 pieces of silver, in the equivalence of, it was a 50,000 pieces of silver would be a, a drachma. A drachma was an hourly wage of about 15 bucks an hour. So if you do an hourly wage of 15 bucks an hour, a day's wage, that's about 120 bucks. What the equivalent of what the Ephesian church brought and burnt from their old past life was approximately $6 million. In understanding the gospel... And what it did, they said, I am tired of this old life. I am taking my camper, my trailer, my boat, and burning it. That's what these guys were like. That's how much they valued the, and, and, and valued the gospel of, in their life. And Paul says, remember, remember the calling that you had. Remember how you, the, worthy, the worthiness that you thought of when you first came to know him. How many of you have given uh, several million dollars to Jesus? Now, remember, this is corporately. Maybe we have. Maybe we don't know because it's corporately. I think there have been people that have given millions and millions of dollars. But when we think individually, none of us are going, oh, a million bucks, that's crazy. Because we think individually, but God doesn't see it. He saw the whole worship of everyone going, they gave about six million bucks. Because they saw the value in, my, in this message. I guess for me, the question is, how much do we place corporately? We can't quantify like the Ephesian church. And in fact, I wouldn't want you to. I wouldn't want you to make giving as an example of look how we give. That's not it. I think for me, I'm asking the question, how do you value Christ and what he's given you? I said the testimony is personal. Why? If you grew up in a Christian home, you probably take for granted what you've been received because you have good Christian parents that told you. And you know what? Often is what it's so easy to look at the, what the world's got and say, they got it better. However, if you did not grow up in a Christian home and you come into this place and you go, oh my word, this is amazing. I, I, I am so blessed to understand there's, that, that this group of people love each other so crazy. My family was dysfunctional. Maybe your Christian family's dysfunctional. I don't, I don't go there. But there's a different value system that comes in. And, and to understand this calling, the calling to maturity, you have to get a value first. You have to see the value in this. The other one is this. It's means of understanding. This is a crucial step to call to maturity. Let me ask this question. What is spiritual maturity? Even as I'm talking, write down what you think on your, in your book, in your notepad, in your Bible, write down what you think spiritual maturity is. Go ahead, you can do it. And I'm going to keep talking. Might even give you the answer. How can I become more spiritual? You see, often when I ask people, I meet people, I ask one question. Simeon knows this because I meet him every two weeks. I have the same pretty much question every time I meet Sim. 
When I'm going for coffee, I don't care who you are. Pastor, I don't ask him, how, how are you doing? Like in a sense of, you know, I'll ask him, how are you doing and all that stuff. But I don't get down to, hey, did you do this? Did you do that? But I don't ask those questions. I simply will ask one statement. What is God saying to you? What is he challenging you? Because I believe that God is always building his church. He's always working in us. So there should be this question. What's he, what's he saying to you? And how is he challenging you? And so Sim and I will sit there and we'll just talk back and forth about what we think God's doing. And it's amazing. Because spiritual maturity is achieved through becoming more like Jesus Christ. It's, it's God, how are you challenging me? How are you walking me into become into the fullness? As I said, the measuring stick is Jesus. Until we attain all the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure, the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we no longer children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine. You see, after salvation, every Christian is now, it begins the process of spiritual growth with the intent to become spiritually mature. And according to the Apostle Paul, it's an ongoing process that will never end. And, and he says this in Philippians 3, 12 and 14. Speaking of the full knowledge of Christ, he tells his readers that he himself has not already obtained it. Not that I've already obtained this or have already been made perfect, but I press on to take that, take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to be taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what's behind, I strain forward to what is ahead. I press towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. You see, Christian maturity requires a radical reordering of one's priorities. It's about changing from us, our selfishness, to then I'm, I'm actually being more like Jesus, who was selfless. And no matter how hard we might work on these things, remember, none of this is absolutely possible except through God and through the Holy Spirit. That's why Paul says, I can't obtain. It's, it's, it's in one way I'm so in need of the Holy Spirit and God to do this. In fact, Ron will be speaking more directly this next week, so I don't want to go too much on it. When we become Christians, we are given all that we need for spiritual maturity. And this is in 2 Peter 1.3. Peter tells us that God's divine power has granted us to all things that pertain to life, godliness, through the knowledge of him, and who has called us to his own glory and excellence. See, we don't even have an excuse because God says, I will help you. You see, understanding that, understanding that this is how I'm going to be called to this, how I'm called to, to maturity, that God is helping, he's wanting me to move in this. But the next question that I ask for this is, if that's what it means, if, if that's what we're talking about being called, that it means a, a calling to mature means to valuing it. And the next one, obviously having an understanding of it. The next thing we see though is he, te- he says something. It's together. But what, did, what does together look like? And this is where in verse two he says, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Together means what? Church. 
Now, first let me be clear about what I mean by church, because I believe when Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail, he actually had a different idea than we do most of the time. Let me explain. Church is actually like a school of fish. It's like a school of fish. Let me explain. Well, why would I say that? Well, when I say church, it's easy to mix up the word. Okay, let, let me go with it. Imagine a girl named Susie. Ah, Susie. I love Susie. Now, Susie, she dreams to be a dancer. Oh, Susie wants to be a dancer. And so she goes to dance school. Anyone ever gone to dance school? Okay. Allison, good job. Well, and then there is Norm. Norm the fish. And Norm, his biggest dream is not to be dinner for someone else. So he is a part of a school. Norm goes to school as well. But the interesting thing is, Susie's idea of school and Norm's idea of school are completely different. Completely different. See, Susie wonders how Norm calls it a school of fish when they don't have a building. Norm wonders how it could be a school of dance when it doesn't even move from place to place. And the confusion comes when we use this one word with two different meanings. When Susie says school, she means a place, a program, or an organization. Eh, Give me an organization. Look at that. Organization. Give me another organization. There's all the people. She's saying people, but organization. But when Norm says school, he means, or he's thinking, a swarm. Lots of norms. (laughs) That'd be scary. Let's not go there. A herd. He's thinking, that's more like it, anyway. Or a flock. That's what he's thinking. And it's very important because when Susie graduates from school, she will remain intact because her school has an existence apart from her. When she graduates and her friends, she'll carry on, and the school will stay there. But when Norm goes a separate way, his school will dissolve. Norm thinks without his friends, the school will cease to exist. Norm sees the school as family. This is similar to the word church. You see, most guys, most people think this. We use the word church to refer more to programs or buildings. We even say we believe it's about people, but in reality, we think or we talk about church like this. What church do you go to? What time does church start? Look at that beautiful old wooden church. You could easily exchange the word church to Susie's term of school. What school do you go to? What time does school start? Look at that beautiful old wooden school. Church can exist apart from you, but if we use Norm's term for the church doesn't quite work. What family do you go to? What time does family start? Look at the beautiful wooden family. (laughs) The term doesn't really work. So the question for me is this, what is is church to you? When he says together, you're going to learn how to do it together, what does that mean for you? Because we have so many different... Uh, even ideas, in fact, different definitions of this. And I always say this. This is what I found out with church. So you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. 
So God places you in a family. Did you know that I didn't get to choose you? I choose you, though. I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, and choose you. No, I, I didn't get to choose you. You'd think, well, Norm, no, you chose us. No, I actually not, didn't get a choice. I said, Lord, where did you place me? Did you get to choose your brother or your sister? Even as dysfunctional as your family may be, did he place you in that? And then he says, out of this, this is why, because you're going to, I'm going to use your family. I'm going to use this as my opportunity for you to mature, to grow, to go together. As I said, this idea of maturity is the idea of together and community. And, and I love it because the, er, the word you, remember the, you, what you received, it's a plural word. And the actions that he lists out in, in chapter two is you can't actually do to yourself. Walk in humility, gentleness, patience, bearing with one another. It's very hard to bear with yourself. Well, maybe some of you might find that easy. I don't know. The Bible actually says there are 59 one other statements in the New Testament. That's right, 59. In the New Testament, he keeps telling us one another, one another, one another, one another, one another. Seven of those, the perfect number is just simply love one another. 59 times he keeps telling us, do it together. Do it together. Stop thinking individual. Stop thinking about you and you and you and you alone. One another. Love one another. Encourage one another. Edify one another. Hold one another up. Serve one another. See, when I, when I understand and I'm getting this idea that the, I, the concept of together and what this looks like, I am, it takes me outside of this little realm here. In fact, I, I found it interesting that, that most of these behaviors, these one another's, uh, can't be done in the church on a Sunday morning. Did you know that? Most of these one another's happen outside of the four walls of the church. Do you know how I know? I got one this week. Suddenly, a somebody out of the blue, a sister, suddenly came up and knows my love language. And as I said last time about different things, you know, that get my heart, toffee fee being one of them, and the other one is this, is coffee. Well, then suddenly, a sister came out and said, here's a Starbucks card. And I said, Why? because I just felt God told me to do this. That would never happen. It doesn't happen in context when you hear someone preaching, does it? It doesn't. It can't. It happens out there. And so what I, I would encourage you to do is ask the Holy Spirit, how can you one another someone this week? And the last one, praise God. Oh, I'm making it through. I just feel good. If I, I'm talking about what it means together, I, 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 together, but what it means is this. He really defines it as this last thing, unity. It means unity. Eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. You see, nothing shows maturity more than unity. And nothing shows more immaturity or unhealthiness when people can't get along. Because the, the idea is this. Jesus died so that we could be one. 
It actually is, a, it's an atrocity when, we, when we're actually not getting along. We're actually speaking against what the Jesus did on the cross. When we say to somebody, I absolutely hate that brother, is an actual offense to the cross. I can't handle that person. Ever said that to someone? It actually is an opposition to what Jesus did on the cross to unify us. Because this is what he says. Paul gives us a perspective, what we're to have. And it shows us why we're supposed to be one. There is one body, one spirit. You're called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father in all, who is over all and through all and in all. In fact, we have these more unifying things than we have disunifying. Uh, What I found interesting, why? We did something crazy today. We were singing in Spanish, right? Spanish. How many of you walk around today and uh, this week and start speaking Spanish? Apart from a few of you that uh, do EAL and stuff like that, yes. How many of you are going to do that? Why would you do that today? That was crazy. It was awesome. Why did it become awesome? somehow Jesus made us all speak in Spanish and we loved it. That's weird. It doesn't happen normally. Somebody came up to me and said, unless you're listening to Justin Bieber and then Despacito and all that. I'm not going there. Okay, don't go there. All of the young people said, yes, we get you, Norm. No, yeah. We're so incredibly diverse, but in Christ Jesus, we become one. And Paul lists one of the greatest Trinitarian verses. We have a Father, we have a Son, we have a Holy Spirit. You know, this is why Aaron and I tomorrow are going to go to a pastor's prayer meeting at Church of the Rock. We're going to meet with 86 other pastors from Mennonites to Anglicans to, I don't know, what are Catholics or everything, parachurch ministers, all of us getting together and we're going to pray for the city. Do you know how? Because of this unifying thing that we have in Christ praying for this city. That's what we're doing tomorrow. You see, what happens when we don't have unity? Imagine your hands going into war with one another. Who loses? We do. (laughs) Imagine the picture of the body. We start going to war with each other. It's literally like you're a masochistic. You're punching yourself is what the Bible would say. And so Paul gives us some really practical walk with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain this unity. And there's a reason why he he says it. It's very practical because we need to learn how to relate. I was listening to a podcast uh, of a guy named Simon Sinex, and he was talking about something called the Millennial Challenge. And they're talking about how we have a generation, those born from 1984 up, and what the challenges they're having and how we're wrestling through this, what they're dealing with this in this culture. The two challenges he lists are technology and patience. I'm going to show this one video because he's talking to a generation, their struggle that they're having with relationship. And it's actually pretty scary because it's not their fault of their own. In some ways, we all are a part of this. I struggle with this. I'm going to confess, I saw this video and I turned to my kids and I said, I am convicted. Go for it. Right? Now, let's add in technology. We know that engagement with social 
media and our cell phones releases a chemical called dopamine. That's why when you get a text, it feels good. Right? So, you know, we've all had it where you're feeling a little bit down or feeling a little bit lonely. And so you send out 10 texts to 10 friends, you know, hi, 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 hi. Because <laughs> it feels good when you get a response, right? Right? It's why we count the likes. It's why we go back 10 times to see if, and if it's going, if our, my Instagram is growing slower, I would, I, I, did I do something wrong? Do they not like me anymore, right? The, the trauma for young kids to be unfriended, right? Because we know when you get it, you get a hit of dopamine, which feels good. It's why we like it, it's why we keep going back to it. Dopamine is the exact same chemical that makes us feel good when we smoke, when we drink, and when we gamble. In other words, it's highly, highly addictive, right? We have age restrictions on smoking, gambling, and uh, alcohol, and we have no age restrictions on social media and cell phones, which is the equivalent of opening up the liquor cabinet and saying to our teenagers, hey, by the way, this adolescence thing, if it gets you down. <laughs> but that's basically what's happening. That's basically what's happening, right? That's basically what happened. You have an entire generation that has access to an addictive, numbing chemical called dopamine through social media and cell phones as they're going through the high stress of adolescence. Why is this important? Almost every alcoholic discovered alcohol when they were teenagers. When we're very, very young, the only approval we need is the approval of our parents. And as we go through adolescence, we make this transition where we now need the approval of our peers. Very frustrating for our parents, very important for us, it allows us to acculturate outside of our immediate families into the broader tribe, right? It's a highly, highly stressful and anxious period of our lives, and we're supposed to learn to rely on our friends. Some people, quite by accident, discover alcohol and numbing effects of dopamine to help them cope with the stresses and anxieties of adolescence. Unfortunately, that becomes hardwired in their brains. And for the rest of their lives, when they suffer significant stress, they will not turn to a person, they will turn to the bottle. Social stress, financial stress, career stress. That's pretty much the primary reasons why an alcoholic drinks, right? What's happening is because we're allowing unfettered access to these dopamine-producing devices and media, Basically, it's becoming hardwired, and what we're seeing is as they grow older, they, too many kids don't know how to form deep, meaningful relationships. Their words, not mine. They will admit that many of their friendships are superficial. They will admit that their friends, that they don't count on their friends, they don't rely on their friends, they have fun with their friends, but they also know that their friends will cancel on them if something better comes along. Deep, meaningful relationships are not there because they never practice the skill set, and worse, they don't have the coping mechanisms to deal with stress. So when significant stress starts to show up in their lives, they're not turning to a person, they're turning to a device, they're turning to social media, they're turning to these things which offer temporary relief. We know, the science is clear, we know that people who spend more time on Facebook suffer higher rates of depression than people who spend less time on Facebook. Right? These things balanced. Alcohol is not bad, too much alcohol is bad. Gambling is fun, too much gambling is dangerous. Right? There's nothing wrong with social media and cell phones. It's the imbalance. Right? If you're sitting at dinner with your friends and you're texting somebody who's not there, that's a problem. That's an addiction. If you're sitting in a meeting with people you're supposed to be listening to and speaking and you put your phone on the table, face up or face down, I don't care, that sends a subconscious message to the room that you're, not just, you're just not that important to me right now. Right? That's what happens. And the fact that you cannot put it away is because you are addicted. Right? If you wake up and you check your phone before you say good morning to your girlfriend, boyfriend, or spouse, you have an addiction. And like all addiction, in time, it'll destroy relationships, it'll cost time, and it'll cost money, and it'll make your life worse.
right? Now let's add in yeah, technology. That's good. That's good. We know it's looped, that it's looped, it's engagement looped. with social. Thanks. I wanted to show you that because the challenge is imagine a generation that's growing up that struggles to actually know how to relate, how to do it together. And it's our challenge, is, and because of the way our culture is even saying, this is how we will deal with it. And it's not helping them. This doing it together is actually harder now than it was 10 or 15 years ago, 20 years ago. Because of just simple things, technology. He also mentioned some things like impatience. Do you know how hard it is to, to make relationships? And in a culture that wants everything now, we want to binge our shows. We want to watch everything in such a now moment. He says, this is, how does a generation learn how to relate? How do they go to that awkward stage of, how do we even relate? Because I started saying, how much am I wrapped up in this? Ken? I'm just going to bring this to... Sydney, if you can just bring to the boom next. And together is one of our greatest ways of displaying Christ to those not connected to the family, but I want to get to this point over here. Next. And I'm going to get closed with this last thought. I thank you for letting me go a little bit longer just because what I wanted to do was make sure that I get that. Here's the point. Today, you didn't come, hopefully, just to hear a guy speak. You heard a guy speak to talk to you and challenge you to say, let's do this. Now, sometimes I think church could be like this. I got a picture of this. Uh, can you, there, a football team. Imagine if today you, were, you saw this at the game. You were going to the game and you saw the quarterback come out and he goes, okay, guys, ready? Ready? We're going to do blue 32, blue to 32. And everyone looks at him and goes, and then they all said, man, that's a great call. Great play. Awesome. Woo-hoo. And they all went back, sat down on the bench. And he's sitting there and he goes, okay, well, then he goes, okay, guys, Come on, he rattles them all back together and he goes, okay guys, now we're going to do red 39, red 39. Ready? And they all break. Oh, that's even better than the last play you called. That is amazing. Man, you are the best play caller in, the, in all, of, all of football. You know, at some point, what would happen is the fans would turn around and say, guys, you're missing the point. Just the point is this. It's when you do it, when you actually make the play and a lot of us for church, that's exactly that. That idea could be that. I come, I hear a message, and I receive, and it's a great play call by some guy who thinks he's a quarterback but really isn't. It's not until you actually say, how does it live out this week? How do you run this play? That's what we want to do. That's how we want to grow to become, to be or not to be the church. So Father, I just thank you for this, this morning. And Jesus, I thank you that you're calling us to be that, to be a church that says, Lord, I thank you that you call us to to this maturity. You have a purpose and a plan for each one of us in this room. And Father, I want to thank you that this morning, I, I know the challenges we have of, Lord, what does it mean to be a part of church? Lord, I want to ask that you would help us in understanding this call And Lord, I pray that you'd start to release this idea of what does it mean to be together. Lord, I pray that you would start doing something that is so 
amazing. There'd be just this incredible unity that starts helping us, Lord, in that the world would literally say, I see your love, and I, I, it, it's, it's not like this world, and I want it. Lord, I just thank you for this church. And I just want to pray, Lord Jesus, that you would now fill us with you to be, call us to the church you want us to keep building us. In your precious son's name we pray, amen.